to support a friend of mine who had been accused of a crime. And clearly, the accusations that were being made were done out of spite because my friend had done no harm to anyone. But the prosecuting attorney was determined that he was going to convict my friend of wrongdoing, and he was an intelligent man. He's an eloquent man. And he just laid out this amazing argument. And as he was going on and on with his arguments, I just had this this sinking sense inside of me that the jury was being persuaded. And the more he talked, the more this sinking feeling began to grow in my gut. And and I started to, to think, man, there's a good chance. This guy is so convincing. He is so eloquent. Even though it doesn't seem like he has a leg to stand on, he's presenting such an incredible case that there is a good chance that my friend could be found guilty. So the prosecuting attorney concluded his argument uh, by, by making this statement. He, he said something to this effect. It was, it was a while ago, so I can't remember exactly, but this is the gist of it. He said, even though there was no harm really done, the meat and potatoes of the case, he used that phrase, the meat and potatoes of the case shows that the defendant is guilty. And with that, he sat down. So my friend's attorney, the defense attorney, he gets up and he makes reference to the prosecution statement about the the meat and potatoes of the case. And he said, you know, as we consider the arguments that were presented by the prosecution, what we really need to be asking is, where's the beef? Making a nod here to this this, uh, commercial that Wendy's was so famous about, he was asking, there's no substance to, to what was being said. And, he, and then the, the, defendant, the defending attorney, defense attorney, went on to effectively put to rest all of these arguments. He just cut them up. The jury went back to make their decision, and they were gone for just a short amount of time. They were back within a few minutes, it seemed, and they came back with the verdict, not guilty. As I left the courtroom that day, I couldn't help but think, that had my friend been representing himself that day, chances are the outcome of that whole experience in the court would have been very, very different. But because he had a really good attorney, the accusations brought against him were silenced. Now, here's the thing. Whether or not you've been taken to court, it doesn't really matter. The reality is, is that every one of us, we all deal with accusations. We all face accusations in our lives. Perhaps you have been told an accusation like this, you're not good enough. Maybe they said it in a different way. Maybe, maybe it was conveyed by an implication, but the accusation was still there. You're not good enough. You ever heard that one? Maybe you've been told that you're a bad person. Maybe they didn't quite say it that way, but the message came through really clearly that there's something wrong with you. Maybe you've even told yourself that you're insignificant. You won't amount to much, that that people really shouldn't value you because you don't have much value yourself. Maybe you've said stuff like that to yourself. Maybe you've said things like you're a hopeless cause because no matter how hard you try to make good decisions, you keep making bad ones. Maybe you have heard these kinds of accusations. Chances are you have. And these are, these are serious accusations. These are life-changing accusations. These are crippling accusations. And the deal is, it's really tough to shake these accusations off because we have all made bad decisions. We've made mistakes. We've done things that are just like, that was really 
not smart. Why did, I, why did I do that? And so when these accusations come, they're easy to believe because there's truth to them. And this is why many people struggle with feelings of guilt. Thankfully, when these accusations come, we don't have to represent ourselves in this court hearing. There is one who is on our side. And he is not only eloquent, but he has the power of a pure life that intercedes on our behalf. And he is able to silence the prosecution. Lately, we've been talking about this theme we're calling the story, the story of the cross. We've been talking about that. And today, as we look forward to Resurrection Weekend next week, we're going to look at Jesus' final statement that he makes on the cross. The last words of Jesus. This, this message that was worthy of the final breath of the Son of God. We're going to take a look at that and how these last words give us assurance that no matter how guilty we are, no matter how many bad decisions we have made, the accusations against us can be silenced. Praise God. The title of the message this morning is Silencing the Accuser. And before we open God's word, I'd like to just pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being a God who speaks on behalf of your people. You speak in our defense. You're on our side. God, I pray that you give us the heart to hear what you have to say, to hear the words of truth. Cut away the distractions. Cut away the doubt. Give us a heart to accept it fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and we're going to be specifically looking at verse 30. Just before Jesus was crucified in the crucifixion story, Jesus did something very significant, very interesting, that allowed him to think clearly during the last hours of his life. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel as well, tells us that when Jesus arrived at the place of execution, just before he was nailed to the cross, he was offered wine to drink. They offered it to him. This was an act of mercy, really. It was, a, it was a gesture of kindness. Everybody knew how painful it was going to be for Jesus. He'd already been through t- terrible experience uh, with being tortured and abused and mocked, um, but they knew that it was about to get much worse, and so they offered him wine. And the Bible says that Jesus refused this drink. Now, this wine would have numbed his pain. It would have eased the agony, but Jesus refused it. With his death just a few hours away, Jesus chose mental clarity, even if it meant feeling the full weight, the full pain of physical suffering. Why did he do this? I would submit to you that Jesus did this because he had an important argument to make. He had an important case to make. He needed to pray, and he needed to have a clear mind to pray. Specifically, he needed to pray for those people who were accusing him. He needed to be present. And if he was intoxicated, that would prevent him from being fully present. He was present with his executioner, so much so that he prays, Father, forgive them. We've talked about that already in our series. He he needed to give the criminal next to him that was finally open open to to salvation and the message of Jesus. He needed to give that criminal hope. And he says, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be with me in paradise. And I'm giving you this assurance today. He was able to do that because he had a clear mind. 
He also needed to take care of his mother as he's dying on the cross. Jesus looks down and he sees his mother. She's heartbroken as, as she sees his, her son suffering on the cross. He knows that, that he's, he's not going to be able to take care of her anymore. And, and there she leans on the beloved disciple, John, the author of this gospel. He says, behold your mother and, and, and mom, behold your son. He's going to now take care of you. He, he, had, he had things to do. He had, he had a case to make. He had God's character to demonstrate in a special way. By refusing the alcohol offered him, Jesus was able, Jesus was able to think clearly on the cross. But after six hours of unmedicated pain, Jesus crucified around nine in the morning and around three o'clock in the afternoon, about six hours of, of this painful torment that was unmedicated. No, no narcotic uh, was in his body. Moments before Jesus' death, Jesus does something to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. John refers to it. Uh, go ahead and pick up the text here in, in verse 28 of John chapter 19. Later, knowing that everything now had been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. That's going to be significant in a minute. Just kind of hold on to that. A stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus lips. Wine vinegar was the very, a very typical drink of soldiers. This was, this was kind of the, the drink of the, of the soldiers because it was very inexpensive to acquire and it had the desired effect. And so the, the soldiers had this jar of wine vinegar. Now for, for the soldiers to have done this, to, to dip a sponge in the, in the wine vinegar and offer it to Jesus, this was an unusual act of kindness. For a soldier to do this, to dip into his own stash of alcohol and offer that to a, 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 a person who was being crucified, who was about to die in a few moments, that was an unusual act of mercy. And one of Jesus' last acts is to receive the kindness of of this soldier. Jesus did not receive this wine vinegar because he wanted to deaden the pain. He was not now looking to check out. That's, that's not why he did it. The Bible tells us that he did it to fulfill the scriptures. And in so doing, what Jesus also did was he declared that his mission was complete, that everything that God sent him to do had been accomplished. Look at what it says in verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Final statement of Jesus. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John, one of the, one of the characteristics of the gospel of John is that when he describes Jesus' death on the cross, he he does it from the perspective that Jesus was in full control of everything that was taking place. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, Jesus carries his cross. In the Gospel of John, Jesus allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to go through the, the torment and the torture of the cross. In fact, if we read this crucifixion narrative in the light of the big story here in the Gospel of John, where he begins in chapter 1 saying that all things came into being through Jesus, really Jesus is responsible for all of this taking place. Jesus is the one that created us with minds to choose not only good, but also bad. He gave us bodies that, is able to, that, are, able to cap that are capable of, of doing great good as well as doing great evil. 
Jesus is responsible for what is taking place here. And, it, and Jesus does not, nothing takes, no one takes Jesus' life from him, according to John. Jesus is faithful to the calling of God, faithful to the work of God to the very last moment, faithful to doing, to doing God's will. And Jesus dies because he chooses to die. It says he bowed his head. No one bowed Jesus' head for him. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. In other words, he gave up his last breath. That's literally what that word spirit means. He gave up his last breath. And as he does this, the, the Bible says that he cries out, it is finished. It is finished. This word finished it is a word that describes completeness. It describes perfection. He says it's perfect. When something lacks nothing, nothing no, lacks no good thing, we can confidently say that it is finished. It's, it's complete. It's perfect. And that's what Jesus is saying here on the cross. But what exactly was Jesus talking about when he says it is finished? Over a thousand years earlier, on the very same month and the very same day and the very same hour, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, God had instructed his people, who were slaves in Egypt at this time, to take a lamb and to sacrifice it. And they were to take the blood from this lamb and with a hyssop branch or, or a bunch of hyssop, they were to dip the hyssop in the blood. This was a, this was a, a plant, hyssop. They were, to, they were to dip it in the blood of this lamb, and they were to brush it on the, on the entryway to their home. The blood was very significant. This, this wasn't just some random thing that he asked them to do. Blood was very significant. In the Bible, blood is a symbol of life. And so when the people obeyed God and sacrificed the lamb and took the, the bunch of hyssop and, and dipped it in the blood and brushed it on the entryway to their homes, what they were doing is they were saying, this life is, is significant. And we, because we are, we are brushing this, this blood on our entryway, we are saying that we trust in the blood of this lamb, the life of this lamb, to somehow protect us. That's what, that's what the statement was. That night, every firstborn son... And every firstborn male animal would die in the land of Egypt unless they were in a home that had blood on the entryway, the blood of the lamb on the entryway. In other words, it did not matter what kind of person this firstborn son was. Like there's no, no thought or no, no investigation as to what kind of person, what kind of people these firstborn children, these firstborn sons were. This firstborn son could have made bad choices in their life. This firstborn son could have had very little potential for doing anything great in their life. But as long as that firstborn son was in the home that was covered, the entryway was covered by the blood of a lamb, as long as they were in there, they were safe. That is what mattered. It did not matter what kind of life they had lived. What mattered was where they were at. They were under the protection of the blood of the lamb. And if they were in there, they we're free from death. Death did not enter into that home. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in fulfillment of this Passover. Every year, God had told them, hey, I don't want for you to forget what happened at the Passover because this was the point of deliverance for the people of Egypt. Nine plagues had 
brought Egypt to their knees, but still the Pharaoh was not willing to let them go. But when this Passover took place, when the destroying angel passed over the land of Egypt and destroyed every firstborn that was not under the blood of the lamb, the people of Egypt said, we give, go, leave. And they were delivered. And so that the people of Israel would not forget this, God said every year on a specific day of the specific month, At a specific hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you are to sacrifice a lamb. He wanted them to remember that this lamb was about deliverance and that because of the life of this lamb, they had life. Finally, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies on the day of Passover. The very day, the very month, the very hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Matthew's gospel tells us. And he fulfills the symbolism of the Passover lamb. When Jesus died on the cross, the Passover lamb symbolism was finished. The symbolism had met the real thing in Jesus. Just like at the Passover, no matter what sinful tendencies you might have, no matter what things bring accusation into your life, As we look to Jesus, we have the assurance and the hope that we too are pardoned. That as we trust in the lamb, the blood, the life of Jesus, no matter what we've done, we are safe. Here's why. It's Jesus' life that covers you. It's not not some arbitrary thing that God is saying, well, we're just going to pretend that everything's right. No, he knows everything is not right with us. But when we trust in the life of Jesus, it's not our life that is being judged anymore. It's the life of Jesus. And there is nothing wrong with the life of Jesus. It is all good. There is nothing that can be found worthy of condemnation in the life of Jesus. That is what covers us when we trust in him. His life covers you because his mission was finished. Now, every time that we are accused because of what Jesus has done, we now have a choice. We can choose to either defend ourselves, handle it ourselves, or we can trust Jesus to silence the accusations. Now, the Bible gives us some really good reasons why we should not handle the accusations ourselves. Although making accusations might seem like a very human thing, a very natural thing for for people to do, because we do it so much, we accuse other people, we accuse ourselves, the truth is, is that this practice of making accusations does not originate with human beings. The Bible tells us that it originates with a being, a, a, a created being of God, who started making accusations long before people ever came around. This being is given the description, given the name of Satan. This is a Hebrew word um, that is actually not a proper name, but it describes the work of this being. It's, It's describing the work of the devil. He's called Satan, and Satan literally means the adversary or the accuser. That's what it means. It's a descriptive word, Satan, adversary or accuser. And like a prosecuting attorney, he scours our life, looking for evidence to condemn us. And if you're anything like me, he doesn't have to look very far. And he finds this evidence, and he throws it in our face. He says, how could you be saved? How could you even 
think about praying and getting on your knees and asking God to help you. Look what you've done. How could you even go to church? How could you worship? How could you even serve? Look at all these terrible things. Accusation after accusation after accusation. He is a relentless accuser. He's a highly intelligent prosecuting attorney, and his accusations have destroyed many people. It has has wiped hope out of many people's hearts. But ironically, the most effective accusations that Jesus, sorry, that Satan has made have not been made against us. They've been made against Jesus. They've been made against God. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's a really significant uh, story in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. And while you're going there, I just want to uh, observe that in the Garden of Eden, Satan was obviously out to destroy. He was out to destroy God's creation, the crowning acts of God's creation, Adam and Eve. But when Eve approached the forbidden tree, notice that Satan does not appear to be who he really is. He doesn't appear to be this, this, this mean monster. He doesn't, he doesn't appear as this powerful, destructive creature. And, and Satan does not use force to make Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Verse 1 tells us that the serpent is the medium through which Satan spoke to Eve, and he chose the serpent for a specific reason. Verse 1 tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other animal. Now, why did Satan need a crafty animal to work through? What was, what was the reason there? He needed something exceedingly crafty. He needed to approach Eve in that way because he needed to make an accusation that was a flat-out lie, but it needed to be really believable. This is what the serpent says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die. God had said, you eat from this tree, you're going to die. Satan says, you will not certainly die. That's his accusation. And the accusation there is that God is a liar, that you— If you break his laws, you're not going to die. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows, he continues on with his accusation. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is not a trustworthy God. He is not a God that you can depend upon to do what is best for you. He's not a good God. And so it's good for you to disobey him because he's withholding good from you. Who is Satan accusing? He's not coming to Eve with accusations against her. He's coming to Eve with accusations against God. Very effective. These are lethal accusations because in a matter of moments, Adam and Eve go from having this wonderful relationship with God. It's it's close. It's intimate. They look forward to talking to him. And after these accusations, because they believe the lies of Satan, they are now, a few moments later, they are running away from God. They're hiding from him. They've just eaten from the fruit, and now they feel terrible, and Satan just keeps on accusing. They're feeling guilty. They're afraid. And they're running away from the very one who is able to save them. No other other savior. They're running away from the one and only source of help. For humanity to be saved, Satan had to be silenced. But if God were to use force and and destroy the devil, he would have only given reason for people to believe that Satan's accusations were true. 
Accusations are not silenced by force. They're silenced by truth. And this is what we see God doing. Immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve in verse 21, we see God presenting the truth of who he is. Instead of getting mad at Adam and Eve, instead of accusing them back, saying, you guys messed up my perfect world, God takes one of his precious animals. It alludes to it in verse 21. And he sacrifices an animal so that he could harvest that skin and make clothes or garments for Adam and Eve. God covers their shame. This is the character of God. That he would give to guilty sinners that which we simply do not deserve. Adam and Eve did not deserve this act of kindness, but God demonstrates that. And generation after generation, God showed the beauty of his character as he gives his laws, as he shows mercy and kindness, as people disobey and God suffers with his people. He continues to show his goodness and kindness throughout human history. But it wasn't until we come to the cross that God makes his final and most conclusive argument that silenced Satan's accusations. There on the cross, we see a God who is willing to give up his life for unworthy people. We see a God who is willing to keep his word even at the cost of his own life. Can you trust a God like that? Can you depend upon a God like that? Can you know a God that is willing to die so that you could live? Can you know that a God like that is going to do what is best for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And although the cross provides a conclusive response that silences Satan's accusations. The reality is, is that Satan continues to make his accusations about God. He's saying the same lies that he did in the Garden of Eden. He's saying that God's a liar, that God can't be trusted, that you don't have to keep his law. In fact, it's better for you if you don't. He's saying all this same stuff. But if we look at the cross, we see the truth about God's character, that he is a good God that he keeps his promises, and that he can be trusted. We need to have this fresh in our minds. And so that this could stay fresh in our minds, Jesus gave us a very special symbolism that we're going to conclude the service with today. I want to invite you to to reach forward in in your pew and grab one of these cups. It has a little wafer on top. Um, It has a little uh, portion of non-alcoholic grape juice. I want to invite you to receive this service. These are symbols of Jesus' body. These call our attention to the cross, to his broken body, to his blood that was spilled for us. So I want to invite you to just go ahead and open the top of your cup and take the wafer. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. If you would like to receive the body of Christ, if you would like to receive the, the, the sustaining power of Christ in your life, just as we receive food to keep us alive, if you would like to receive his life, his his body broken for you, that sustains you, he offers it to you. It says that on the night that he was betrayed, that the Lord Jesus took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say that in the same way, he took the cup. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hear it. This is the life of Jesus. The new covenant is the law of God on your heart. This is the new covenant in my blood. His life for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul finishes with these significant words. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. His final argument, the silencing point, the silencing argument against sin. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have a capable, amazing defense attorney who wins every case. And as we look to him, we can have the assurance that we are pardoned and we are safe. I'd like you to just join as we sing this last song, as Tim leads us in this last song, this hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Please sing along. <laughs>